Welcome back to another episode of Coaching with the Bible. This is episode 165, season 4, episode 5, our topic of the week on making the case. We've been the last number of weeks really focused in and zoomed in on what's going on here in Israel, the war effort, the fight against Hamas, the fight against evil, and we've talked about some very heavy and heady subjects over the course of those weeks. And here's another one, um, different but related. The first, maybe a note of, I don't know, hope or optimism, something like that, that comes actually directly from this week's uh, Torah reading. Um, the reading of this week deals with the s- two stories, really. Um, the death of Sarah, Abraham's wife, and her burial in Hebron. And then the story of the search and the seeking out of Rebecca as a wife for Isaac. Those are the main. The third story that actually appears in the, in the text here, really, at the end, is the death of Abraham. And that... Um, surprisingly, perhaps, is the note of hope. When Abraham dies, the Bible tells us that he is buried in the same location where Sarah is buried, in the double cave, what's called in Hebrew, Ma'arat HaMachbelah, that is in Hebron, and it's been there forever, basically. And it's a holy site for many people, certainly for the Jews, and certainly for the Muslims as well. And the Bible tells us that when it came to his funeral, so no surprise that Isaac is there to bury him, because Isaac is part of his household, but the other children, um, certainly those who Abraham bore with Keturah right before that, um, are sent away. And in the last portion, we know that Ishmael was also sent away. But amazingly, amazingly, Ishmael is present at the funeral of his father. It's sort of an amazing moment. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs has a very beautiful essay on this subject. I recommend it. It's in Covenant and Conversation on Judaism and Islam. That's the title. And therein he talks about this. And that's just the mention of the hope here. The idea that both Abraham, sorry, that Isaac and Ishmael could be there together in the passing and death and the burial of their father seems to be some form of reconciliation, of an ability to come together, even if they're different and they're living differently and they're living in different locations. They can see each other, they can look at each other, and they can figure out a path forward. Rabbi Sachs goes into much greater detail. There's a beautiful Midrashic text about Abraham and Ishmael's interaction over the course of the many years between. But maybe there is a, a hint of hope there that... It doesn't always have to be war. It doesn't always have to be hate. It doesn't always have to be fighting and killing and rape and torture and kidnapping and rockets and bombs and destruction. Maybe there is a way forward. I don't know what that would be, but maybe there is a way forward after this that can be together. It can be united. That can be different than what's been so far. And maybe that's a moment of hope. Pause on that. Our main focus though today really is on how to make the case. That's really what I want to talk about, how to make the case. It's super important to appreciate how we make an argument and how we make the case for really anything. And it comes up here in the course of this week 
when it is the case, here it is, that the servant of Abraham goes to seek out a wife for Isaac. What's really, really, really important here for us is to appreciate something that we learned when we were little kids, which is how to use our words. If you have children at home when they were little and they were starting to learn how to talk, so instead of allowing them to get what they wanted by grunting or pointing, we would say to them, use your words. It seems so silly. But it was the idea, the ability to teach people how to speak. Use your words. And so in the modern climate, especially in this current environment, our ability to use words and to articulate arguments is crucial. And so as we said over the course of the last number of weeks, and it's clearly the case from what you're seeing in the world, that this fight, this war, is being fought on multiple planes. There's the political, there's the actual battlefield, and there's also the social communal space where this is being fought, which sort of sheds its light on social media, and then ultimately, I think, on the different campuses and communities where it is playing out in real time in a quite horrific and scary way. To use our words. Words have power. Immense, immense power. Let me share with you a quote. The magic of words is that they have power to do more than convey meaning. Not only do they have the power to make things clear, they make things happen. Words have power. Words have consequence. And even though we say sticks and stones break my bones and names can never harm me, it's really not true. Those words, those names, things that people call us, they actually do hurt. They stick. They stick differently, but they stick. They hurt. When you read the things that people say about you, about your community, about your people, about your country, and it's negative and it's horrible and it, it, it's shocking, it hurts. It can send you down that spiral circle that we talked about last week or a couple of weeks ago and being in that dark place, maybe it's three, four weeks ago already, the time has been flying, and you can start to believe some of it. Because words have meaning and words stick, especially when they come from certain people who maybe you respect or maybe you think are intelligent, maybe you think have a good grasp on history or an understanding of the conflict. So words have meaning. In our faith, in Judaism, we take words very seriously. Rabbi Norman Lamb, in a sermon that he gave 60, I think 63 years ago this week in New York City, on the subject of the power of words, goes into the idea that when the Bible first introduces man to the world, and it says that God infused man with the Spirit of God, one of the commentaries says, what does that mean? It's the ability to speak. The differentiating factor between man and non-man, right? Other, other uh, species and animals that exist on earth is the ability to speak. Not just to make sounds, but to communicate in this way, whatever way that is. Our ability to speak is our ability to make things happen. Our ability to use words is the ability to inspire, to create joy, and on the flip side, to incite and to cause pain. So we have to begin to appreciate the power of those words. In that speech, Rabbi Lamb said the following. We hold that words are holy as well. If our words... If our word is to be holy, we must keep it, honor it, and revere it. Indeed, the sanctity of a man's word is a measure of the confidence he deserves, whether in business or within the family. 
If he keeps his word holy, people will confide in him and trust him. If he desecrates his word, then he does not deserve the confidence of his wife, his partners, and his fellow men. Many, many years after the great sages discussed this concept, Oliver Wendell Holmes was to put it this way, life and language are alike sacred, homicide and verbicide are alike forbidden. And so we have to be careful and not casual with our words. We have to be mindful and specific with the terminology that we use. Generalities or inconsistencies or inaccuracies can be, in fact, dangerous. And so it's super important that we appreciate this. In prosecuting his business case for why Rebecca should go with him back to the home of Abraham, Eliezer, the servant of Abraham, is incredibly thoughtful and incredibly strategic in the manner in which he executes that event. And that's really the deeper part of this conversation. If you look at the text, the text tells us what happens. So the story plays out. Abraham makes an oath with his servant. The servant goes to find a wife. He makes a request of God, and he makes a bit of a test with the water at the well and the camels. Rebecca passes that test. He comes. He's amazed. He's excited. God shined light on him in that moment. Miracle of miracles. And that should be the end of the story. But the Bible then repeats the whole story in his words. He tells the story to her family. And if you go through it, I counted, it's something like a 15 or 16 step process that he goes through to get to the ask at the end of it, which is, she's coming with me, is that okay, to be the wife of Isaac? Now he has set that up. It's, an, it's a masterful approach. It's not a negotiation. The beginning of the, of the portion where Abraham is negotiating with the Hittite family and Ephron specifically to be able to purchase the cave for a burial ground for his wife. That is a negotiation back and forth. And there the wordplay is also crucial to appreciate what Abraham is saying, what the other people are saying, what, excuse me, what they're negotiating on, how they come to that conclusion. Words matter. And so is the case here. He is very deliberate in his approach, Eliezer. He starts before he even meets the family by planting seeds in the mind of Rebecca when he meets her, that when she's to go back to her home and then to invite him in, she will have already begun to start the story. And so he uses the name of God. He shows wealth. He prostrates himself onto the ground. He's excited. And she goes back and she brings that to the home before he's invited in. He is already planting the seeds. And he sets the stage for this story to unfold because, very importantly, when it is that a person has to make a case for anything, appreciate what the goal is. He has one goal. His one goal is to get this young woman to go back with him to become the wife of Isaac, effectively then fulfilling his vow, his oath to his master, to Abraham. So now really, however he's going to have to go about doing that, he's going to do it. But he wants it to be done, it seems, in a manner in which the family approves and the family is a partner in the decision and is sending her off. Now, he has to push that forward and really work that hard. He doesn't allow it to sort of stray or sway or get away from him. He's very focused on it. But he does begin at the beginning of this and he begins before he even meets them. And then he immediately, in his first moment with the family, he sets a surprise. 
normally is the case you come into someone's house or you come to a meeting, you don't typically get down to business right away. You'll break bread. I remember years ago, I went to an interview somewhere for a job. We went out to dinner, the person interviewing me and I went out to dinner at a nice restaurant in New York City. And um, he ordered bread. Sat down, he ordered bread immediately. Water was on the table, he ordered bread immediately. Due tradition, he got up to go wash his hands before eating the bread, and I did as well. I didn't really want to, but the sense of breaking bread with this person was to create the right environment for the conversation that was to come later, which was about the, about the specific role. In parentheses, I, I didn't last very long at that role, like many others, but the story is the story. Eliezer is coming into this home in a foreign land to make a very specific kind of request of this family. And before he even allows the opportunity to eat, the food is in front of him, he could start. No, I'm going to talk first. And he proceeds to execute, making the case for why it is that this person should go with him to be the wife of Isaac, step by step. He establishes his credentials. He establishes the opportunity for this young person. He establishes the miraculous nature of it. He establishes this story that took place in just the last few minutes beforehand with a couple of very key switches in the language to get the family to be on his side. By the something like the 20th verse, he finally gets to, well, now can she go with me? What else could be the family response? But their family's response is telling because it's obvious to them, father and son are participants in the agreement and the acquiescence to the request. And they invoke God's name the same way that he invoked God's name multiple times in this story. It's brilliant. And so he's making the case. You might call it selling. Fine, I don't sell. But I imagine if I was discussing this piece with people who are in sales, they might imagine that that's the case. It's compelling, it's powerful, it's strong, point by point by point by point, because he knows exactly where he wants to go, he knows exactly how he wants to get there, and he leaves almost no room. I would imagine on some level that he might have considered and thought it through before he went there. If he's that strategic, then probably yes. So we need to appreciate how we use our words, and how we make the case in these situations, especially now. If you're paying attention to social media, to the news, anything that's going on in the world right now, you're paying attention and appreciating that what's happening on different planes, not on the battlefield itself, but on this other plane, this social, communal, existential, spiritual level, there's another battle raging as well. It's for the moral case for what's going on here in the Middle East. And you see and read a lot of people who are foolish in their arguments, weak in the level of the strength of their argument, and I would say incendiary in their use of certain terminology and words. Putting people in danger with their words. And on some level, it's frustrating. On another level, it's maddening. And it's important, though, that each and every one of us is able to make the case, first and foremost, to ourselves, 
then to maybe our families, and then to maybe beyond that. And when we're strong enough or feel good enough about our ability to make that case, then to really go to the public space with it. For years, I mentioned this a few times already in the last number of weeks, I taught a course on the Middle East conflict. The course on the Middle East conflict wasn't just simply history. It really wasn't the idea. The idea of the course was to prepare students for college campuses. Because already when I started teaching this course 15 years ago, it was clear that on college campuses already at that point, that was too late for kids to sort of catch up. And the idea that Jewish kids specifically had the knowledge and the ability to debate this discourse on campus was simply not true. They may have grown up in a community with a very strong sense of Zionism. They may have grown up in a very strong sense of patriotism and affinity for Israel. Religious or not religious, doesn't matter. But it really wasn't true. Most kids knew about Israel, knew some of the history of the state of Israel, Jewish history to some degree. But the ability to execute an argument or even hold a debate, nobody. And so they were behind the eight ball already by the time they got to campus. So this course was implemented in advance to get to them in 11th grade or 12th grade so that they could prepare and learn and understand and appreciate and practice even to the degree by which was necessary so that they could succeed in the case. Not to convince people who are on the other side of this argument, radicals or people who vehemently disagree. That's really not where the debate is. Debate is really with so many people who have no idea and so many people who are in the middle and so many people who are sort of playing the role in many cases of the useful idiot, to use the term, uh, in the current moment. So learning how to make the case. There are some great examples of people out there right now on social media and in the news who are excellent at this and they're not creating new things from thin air. They've either learned a skill set over the course of time, they've practiced it, and they're good at it, and it can actually be emulated and copied, stolen, quote-unquote, to use the term, to appreciate how to then do it yourself. And so it's an important thing. It's part of this. And so if you're on, a, you know, really either side of the conflict, but if you're on the side of Israel in this conflict, as no surprisingly I am, um, but it's important that we know how to do this. So there are a particular set of debate skills to, to, uh, to work on, to use here. This ability to tell stories, this ability to pick from where the person who is also in that space, an interviewer, a debate, whatever it is, and to have that conversation. But appreciate the following. That set of skills is teachable. It's practicable. It's implementable fairly quickly. Whether we want to or we don't want to, we're comfortable or not comfortable in the, in the public sphere is one thing. But in the private spaces of our home with our own families, our spouses and our children, that's a place where we can have legitimate argument and discussion and conversation and debate, but be prepared to have that done right. The second thing that's really important is to appreciate what the goals are. What are you trying to accomplish with this? You're trying to convince are you trying to create doubt? Are you trying to effectively sort of prosecute against somebody who doesn't know what they're talking about but is sort of very loud and persuasive even in their ignorance? 
And then it's to know not all the facts, enough facts to make the case and to know the specific issues that we're talking about. The Middle East conflict is not so many issues. It's complex and there's a lot of layers to it, but the number of, of, of issues at play here are not so many. It's not like a thousand different things. You know, five, eight, ten different subjects, not a lot. How much fact? Can't know all the facts of the Middle East conflict. Certainly not from both sides of this different, sorry, it's so many different things. But enough of the questions that come up with respect to the conversation around Israel being an occupier, the idea that's very popular now about uh, Israel being a colonizing power, the idea around proportionate and disproportionate force, the idea around a Palestinian state in the course of history versus now versus in the future. Uh, an example that sort of popped up very ferociously, obviously, in the last week is, you know, free, free Palestine, right? From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. What that means, what that doesn't mean, how people understand it, what it looks like. How do you discuss that? How do you debate that? How do you show someone who's saying something like that, what that actually means, and what that actually means to you? That's what this is about. First and foremost, it's about us knowing it for ourselves, to give ourselves confidence, to give ourselves the boost, as I've talked about a couple of times, to help us put that spine straight and feel very confident and, and, and strong in our belief that we're in the right, and then to go beyond. Admittedly, this week I was tinkering with... Um, um, conversations and commenting and replying to posts on Twitter. The cesspool that is known as Twitter or formerly as Twitter now is X, but there's still some there's still some good things that come out of there. There's a lot of really smart people there who are articulating an argument. There are people who are fighting that fight on that platform. I don't know how they do it all the time. It can be sort of like the death of your soul. But people are. And what you realize is that the conversation, once it gets below, like sort of, I would say, surface level one or surface level two, for most of the people, there's not a lot there. Certainly what you see in the public sphere, in the streets, on the college campuses, it's a lot of people who don't know anything. And so it's important to appreciate, again, to appreciate what the goals are, to appreciate how to make the argument, to figure out who the audience of your argument really is, I think that's super important here, and then to really go about doing that. When I taught the course years ago, I didn't always advocate, I never advocated for my students to get up in a public classroom on a college campus and argue with a professor, even though one or two actually did. It was not my goal. My goal was for them and then for them to talk with among their friends. But we worked on it in different ways. We had those who were really good at the public debate and the conversation. We had some who were really good at writing just to sort of give you a, a different way to think about it. And so what they would do, this is already, YouTube was already in existence, um, and people were posting videos on different, on that platform. And I had a couple of students who would write comments, and they would write out their comments based on what we had learned in the class together. And you could see how successful they were based, based on the vitriol that they got back in response. So this is a new front for a lot of people, especially because everyone is on social media and they're seeing this in front of them and they're on the news sites and they're seeing all the video and all the 
everything coming at them and the algorithm plays with them and it shows them more of it and they simply don't know what to do. Let's not take it for granted in the community that people know how to do this. But it's really important that they know how to start talking about these kinds of things, to learn the skill set, to appreciate the goals, to appreciate the audience, and to appreciate the limited number of issues that are at play here, because ultimately, ultimately, that's how this is won. It's not won completely on the battlefield. It's won in a mix of places. The battlefield is won, but also it is also won in these other locations as well. So it's really super important that we appreciate how that works. And let's end with a quote. Who goes as follows? It's someone by the name of Nicholas DiNapoli. And I don't know who that is, but I found this quote. I thought it was very sort of right on with what I'm talking about here. And again, if you want to talk about it more, by the way, reach out. I'm happy to discuss it with you further, to talk about through the issues, to appreciate how to develop a really quick response to some of these things. I gave a lecture for a number of years on how to respond in a tweet or how to understand that you can talk about this in less than 20 seconds and really get a very power strong point across. You see the people who do this, they're not better than you, they're not greater than you, they're just more practiced at this than you, and they're willing to step into that very uncomfortable space and debate this and discuss this. We can also do that. Here's that quote. Words have the power to heal and enslave, uplift and destroy. Our words have the power to construct entire worlds or bring existing ones to ruin. They are perhaps the most potent tool humanity has been given. We would all do well to use them with just a little more care. That is Coaching with the Baba for this week. Look forward to seeing you next week.